This is uh, Luke 2, I'm oh, sorry, 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by him on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robert. Let's go uh, to God in prayer now. God in heaven, thank you that you have loved us. Thank you, Lord, um, that you are merciful to us in your great love for us. As we come to your word this morning, as we worship you, we ask Lord, that you would meet us, that you would um, restore us by your spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would speak through me by that very same spirit, Lord, that you would use this time, this text, our worship to bring each one of us closer to you, Lord, and to be made more and more into the image of Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So for those of you who don't know, if you're visiting, I'm Terry Dykstra. I'm not the regular preacher here. Um, I do RUF International at the University of Texas. That's our denomination's ministry to international students. So um, I announced that last week. If you want to know more about that, we'd be happy to talk afterwards. But excited to be with you this morning and excited to do this text. This is probably my favorite parable um, of Jesus. And I think is one that God used in bringing me to RUF International, but it's, it's just awesome, and I love it, so glad to be bringing it to you this morning. Last year, there was a film that came out called Won't You Be My Neighbor, and this was a documentary about Fred Rogers and his television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's a great watch. If you haven't seen it, you should go rent it this afternoon. Uh, and watch it. It's really enjoyable. But it's really interesting to kind of see how Fred Rogers, you know, he was not somebody that was in TV. He wasn't an actor. He wasn't a television producer. He was a pastor. But he wanted to make this television show and to give children this show to watch. Because according to him, he said, the greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and are capable of loving. That was Fred Rogers' mission, and that's why he created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And this mission was seen clearly 
in his opening invitation to every single episode. I'm not going to sing it. That would be bad. But I will say it. He would always start every episode saying, singing, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Won't you be mine? And as a parent of a small child, this lives on in Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is a spinoff of that show. But this is why Fred Rogers made the show. This is what he wanted to communicate to children and to everyone watching. And you may have heard it between Robert reading the text and between if you've seen that movie or just hearing, Won't You Be My Neighbor? You hear that there's a massive difference between the question, okay, so who is my neighbor? And won't you be my neighbor? The lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Luke tells us that he's trying to justify himself. He loves the law. He's clearly uh, an expert in religious law. And so he wants to make sure that there's no room for mistakes. He wants to make sure he knows who to love, to be as efficient as possible, and not waste any energy or time loving the wrong people. As we saw last week with the prodigal son, when there's no room for mistakes, there's no room for Jesus, as was true of the older brother. But the question, won't you be my neighbor, is an invitation. It's a sign of love. It's saying, I love you, and I want you to be my neighbor. I want us to be together. And as this parable shows us, love is an invitation. Again, last week, we saw the father's love for his sons that drove him to invite his sons back in, even when they had run from him, even when they had sinned against him, and even the one who hadn't done any of that outwardly was trying to be righteous on his own. The father loved them and invited them back in. And we see in this parable that true love for our neighbors is deeper than just our interests, our professions, even our heritage. It's deeper than our social circles and social events. As Jesus answers this question from the lawyer, through this parable, he's showing us and outlining his own mission, the mission that God gave him as he sent him. And he affirms that following Jesus in that mission, even if it's to inherit eternal life, is summed up in loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and loving your neighbors as ourselves. And through the course of this parable, he shows us who to love, he shows us the cost of love, and he shows us that love is his own mission. Of course, for any mission, for any objective, any task, we need to know what to do. We need to know who to love. So the lawyer's question, from that standpoint, is reasonable. You know, if somebody asked us to go get some things from the grocery store, we would say, all right, what do you need? And they'd just be like, no, just go to the store. Just, I just need some stuff. Just go get it. You'd be like, uh, okay. And we probably wouldn't get the right stuff. So it's, it's okay to ask what to do. But it's not the same totally. You know, asking who to love again, the lawyer is seeking to justify himself. He's seeking to be as efficient as possible and seeking to do the bare minimum. Like, hey, just tell me, like, just tell me their names. Tell me who they are. Tell me where they live. I'll love those people, but I don't want, like, any waste of time any outsiders, any of that kind of stuff. He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to say, here's my resume, like the older brother last week, and say, I've never done anything wrong. Look, I've loved all the people that you told me to love. 
But it's clear in this parable, and should be clear to us, knowing who to love or even what to do is not the same as actually loving those people or doing it. You know, if we were to ask the same question to Jesus, if we had that opportunity, hey, Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And he told us, hey, all you got to do is jump over the Capitol building. Does knowing that piece of information make it possible for us to do it? No. I don't think any of us could do that. And the same is true for knowing who to love. Even if we know the right things, even if we go to school and study them extensively, it doesn't mean that we are actually obeying the law. It doesn't mean that we are actually doing what God has asked us to do or what he has commanded us to do. And never mind the fact that the lawyer in asking this question has just kind of yada yada the whole part about love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's like, yeah, yeah, I got that. But like, who is my neighbor? Like, who are these people that you're talking about? For any of us, if we were to ask that question, even as we think of it, who do we think our neighbors are? You know, the, the word neighbor, neighborhood, we might think of the people that live near us, that live close to us. But we might also think of our friends, people like us, that have the same interests, hobbies, uh, like the same sports teams or even the same sports. For the lawyer, he was probably thinking, hey, like, just tell me to, like, love my lawyer buddies and other Jews and people like that. Got it. I can do that. But Jesus shows us that it's more than just the people like us, as easy as it might be to love those who are similar to us. And Jesus gives this parable to show us that the Christian life is not an independent life. Again, this kind of question of seeking to justify yourself, seeking to do everything right, is, hey, I want to get there myself. I don't want any help. I don't want any riffraff. I just kind of want to do it and do it the right way. And I say this knowing how much I am guilty of this, how much I just want to do it right. I don't want to be accountable to anybody. But that's not what God calls us to. That's not what he invites us to as he seeks to bring us into his family. The better question that the lawyer should have asked instead of who is my neighbor is Fred Rogers' question, won't you be my neighbor? Or even how can I love my neighbor? Not who is my neighbor. And even though he doesn't ask that question, that's the question that Jesus answers here in this parable. He says there's a man headed from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's talking to a Jewish audience. He's talking about a Jew, somebody like them, one of their own. And this man in verse 30, Jesus says, was stripped, he was beaten, and he was left half dead. And so we might be wondering, what does this have to do with loving neighbors? Like, this is kind of a bummer. But this man has fallen on hard times, and he's left half dead. But Jesus says, by chance, a priest, the assumed hero, the audience would have been like, yes, this guy knows what to do. He's going to save the day. I'm a Batman guy myself, but maybe it's your favorite, like, superhero or Avenger. Be like Jesus saying, by chance, Iron Man came, and everything's going to be all right. But look what happens. He says, by chance, a priest walked by and saw him, and when he did, he passed by on the other side. All right, like, maybe he's going to temple. Maybe he's got other stuff to do. But in verse 32, Jesus says, likewise, a Levite, okay, like, He's the number two of the priest. He's going to know what to do. 
The priest was busy, but he too saw the man who fell among the robbers, and he passed by on the other side. <clears throat> These were the expected heroes. These were the people that, if anybody knew what to do, if anybody knew how to help a fellow Jew, the priest and the Levite would be them. But they don't. They pass by on the other side. But why? Why, if they know what to do, if they're the people to do it, why don't they do it? There are plenty of reasons. I mean, I've never seen somebody half dead. I assume that they probably looked fully dead if they were half dead, as the text tells us they were. And so for them, for any Jew to touch somebody or something that was dead would make them unclean. And that would lead to at least a week, especially for priests and Levites, of purification rituals so that they could restore themselves, make themselves clean, and kind of go about their duties as priests and Levites. So if nothing else, it'd be inconvenient to, to go check on this man. And if he's dead, be like, oh man, now I got like a week out of the office. I got to like go out and do all this stuff. And so I'm just going to like put my headphones in and kind of like keep going, pretend I didn't see this guy. He avoids getting dirty. He doesn't want to deal with the inconvenience or the cost of helping this guy, both the priest and the Levite. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, this is convicting. I know whenever, you know, we've lived here for two years, people ask us like how many of our neighbors we know. And we know a few of them, but we don't know like everybody in our area. We don't know everybody that like lives all the way to the park that we walk to. Rosaria Butterfield, she, um, her most recent book is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, she's a really cool story, her conversion. Um, I won't get into all that, but in this book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she spends a couple chapters talking about how the whole book basically is her saying like, hospitality and the gospel changed me and now me and my husband, like we are trying to love intentionally our neighbors and love the people closest to us by having these meals every Sunday, like doing all this other stuff. Um, I don't recommend it to say like, hey, this is like what we should all do. But um, it's really just interesting in thinking about what it means to love our neighbors and how we can do that. But she talks about one of her neighbors named Hank, who through the process of at least a year, they came to know. Hank, according to her, was kind of a bristly guy, kind of reclusive, um, kind of gruff exterior, had a pit bull named Tank. Um, but they just kind of wanted, they were really wanted to get to know Hank. He lived like a diagonal from them, I think. And they just wanted to know him. They wanted to love him. They knew he wasn't a Christian, but they're just like, hey, he's our neighbor. You know, God has put us here. Let's love this guy. And after they get to know him, after they befriend him, he's later arrested because he had a meth lab um, in the basement of his house. And so she describes the scene of there's cop cars everywhere, there's crime scene tape. Um, you know, they're, they're dragging him out shamefully to arrest him for this. Um, and over the, the aftermath that follows, you know, they, they would invite their neighbors over and say like, hey, let's have dinner. Let's talk about it. Let's pray for Hank. Let's pray for whatever family he has. They ended up actually taking Tank, their dog, um, and watching him while Hank was in prison. And thankfully, he came to faith in prison, but 
she really interestingly talks about, you know, like themselves, the Butterfields, other believers, you know, they're praying for Hank. They're worried about him. They want him to come to faith, which he did. But then there are other neighbors who are just kind of frustrated with like, man, now our housing values are going to go in the toilet because there's a meth lab like right over there. And that's, I think, like a lot of the inconvenience that, that we might feel as we seek to love our neighbors and even as we fail to do so. I know that's true for myself, you know, and it was true in this parable for the priest and the Levite that like, man, it's just kind of messy. It's inconvenient. I don't know if I want to like get into it and might even just be like, I'm ashamed of my own mess. Like I don't, I don't want to have to like put anybody else through that. And so I'm just going to kind of like not get involved and not do that. And Jesus in showing us this parable and telling this parable is showing us that true love is costly. True love is risky and messy. Of course, it's not the good guys. It's not the Avengers, the priests and the Levites who bear the cost of loving the man who fell among the robbers. To them, it wasn't worth that inconvenience or cost. But for Jesus, he doesn't go, he's not just going from priest, Levite, Samaritan. He's not just kind of going like down the whole list. He's going from one to two to the Samaritan would not even be listed. Jews hated Samaritans. They were a hated outsider. You know, the audience, as Jesus says this, would probably be like, what? Like, anybody but him. Like, a Samaritan? Are you kidding me? Of course, any Jew could hope to imitate a priest or a Levite, the first two guys who come but then walk by, but they would not aspire to be like any Samaritan, no matter what they did. I mean, even at the end of this parable, when Jesus asked, who proved to be a neighbor, the lawyer can't even say a Samaritan. He can't even bring that phrase to his lips. He says, the one to whom he showed mercy. He won't even say it. The hate the vitriol between these groups is probably worse than even like the racism that has plagued our country and continues to plague our country, if we can believe it. They considered Jews, Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds. But the Samaritan is the one who sees the man who fell among the robbers, the same man, the same man who is half-dead, can't imagine that his condition has improved at all. He sees him, and unlike the priest and the Levite, he has compassion on the man. Look what he does. He binds his wounds. He pours oil and wine, expensive commodities to help the healing process. He put him on his own donkey to walk whatever was left of the 17-mile journey on foot. And he brought him to an inn and gave the innkeeper two days wages with the promise of, hey, whatever else you spend on this guy, I'm going to pay it when I come back. In addition to all that, the Samaritan is subjecting himself to a similar fate. As a hated outsider, if he was to show up to a Jewish city with a half-dead Jew on his donkey, everybody who sees that is going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy, like, he's probably the one who did it. Let's get him. They think he did it. But the Samaritan is showing the costly, law-fulfilling love that Jesus is talking about and that the whole Bible talks about in loving our neighbors. For Jesus, love is costly. For the whole Bible, really, it shows us that love is costly 
but ultimately, it's worth it. Last month, there was this story. Um, Mary Rose and I moved from Atlanta, so it was kind of cool, like, seeing this meeting of worlds. But there was a story in May about an Austin entrepreneur named Robert F. Smith who gave the commencement address at a historical black college in Atlanta called Morehouse. He gave the commencement address last month, and he said that he was going to pay for all the student debt of that entire graduating class, which estimates show was about is probably going to be about $40 million for the 400 or so graduates that graduated. One student had made a spreadsheet, calculated, okay, if I, if I spend half my salary towards my student loan debt, how long is it going to take me to pay this off? And his calculation showed that it was going to take him 25 years of spending half his salary to pay off that debt. But after graduation, after hearing this from Robert Smith, he said, I can delete that spreadsheet. I don't have to live off peanut butter and jelly sandwiches anymore because my debt has been paid. For Robert Smith, it was worth it for him to do that because he wanted to give because he had been given love. He had not necessarily been given, I forget the name of his company, um, it's here in Austin, but you know, because of the wealth that he had, he wanted to share that, and he wanted to give this graduating class the benefits that he had earned and that he would receive, that they might benefit. And he asked them, hey, pay it forward, you know? Like, this is a gift that's given to you, but it's not for you to keep. It's for you to share with others. And that's the same gift that God gives us. And Jesus coming down for us and sharing his inheritance with us, he's saying, look, I'm giving you new life. I'm healing you, I'm restoring you. But that's not just for you and for us individually. That's for you to share with others, to love your neighbors, to love your neighborhoods and your friends and even the outsiders, even the people who aren't like you. In telling this parable, Jesus is showing us that the Good Samaritan is unlike us, not just as a hypothetical outsider situation, but Jesus is showing us through the Good Samaritan how he loves us as a hated outsider. And that's because he was sent on a mission to love us. The truth is, like the Jews to the Samaritans, like us to God, we are totally unlike him. And we can't aspire to be like God as much as we might imagine ourselves gods or godlike. We're limited. We're creatures. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves like God or to be like him. And our debt is a cost that we can never hope to pay, and not just, hey, it's going to take 25 years of hard living and PB&J. Our cost is unpayable. We can never pay it. But Jesus paid it for us, the same way the Samaritan put his life on the line to restore this half-dead man who fell among robbers. He did so without seeking repayment, the same way God does for us. The difference between us and the man who fell among robbers is Jesus says he was half dead. The scripture tells us that we are totally dead in our sins. We have no hope. We have no pulse. Nothing is going to happen unless somebody gives us life. And Jesus did that. And he did it to restore us to community, to dignity, and also to family. As we saw last week, we see here through all of scripture, God did this to bring us into his family, that we might be his children.
course, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, he was not asking, hey, who is my neighbor? That's the show I'm going to make. But he was asking, won't you be my neighbor? He wanted to love children and to show them that they are loved and capable of loving. He would often say in every episode, I like you just the way you are, to tell kids, look, you don't have to be a certain way, you don't have to be a certain type of person, you are loved and you are capable of loving. And some of us might bristle at that idea that we can love people the way they are. You know, scripture tells us of sanctification, of being made more and more into the image of Jesus. But loving our neighbors doesn't mean we have to approve of or even agree with everything that our neighbors do. I don't think any of us in here agree with or approve of everything that our families or our best friends do even. And so why would we think that we have to do that with everybody? God loves us not because he agrees with or approves of everything we do, but he loves us because he made us and because he sent Jesus to die for us, to bring us back to his family. Fred Rogers changed television because the love of God and changed him. And scripture tells us that God so loved us that he gave his only son for us, that he too would change us and to let us know, as Fred Rogers did, that we are loved and capable of loving. As he invites us to be his children, we who were dead, we who were unlovely, we who were risky. You know, love, love is hard. But God doesn't ask us to do it lightly. God asks us to love because he has loved us at much greater cost. And so we who were dead, who were unlovely, can love each other, can love outsiders, can love those who are not like us because he has loved those who are not like him and who didn't even seek after him, Scripture tells us. Excuse me. God loves us because his love is great, not because we are. And so... Because we are loved by Jesus, because we are loved by the true good Samaritan who gave his life for us, who did it freely to restore us and to give us the ability to share that love with others, let us, as he tells the lawyer, go and do likewise as we prepare to come to this communion table. So let us go now to God in prayer. God in heaven, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you, Father, that you paid the price to restore us, that you weren't just restoring us from being half dead and stripped and robbed, that you you were restoring us from complete death. Lord, thank you for making us alive by the blood of Jesus. Please, Lord, fill our hearts with your love, that we may love others, Lord, that you may show them yourself through us for your glory. God, we thank you for your gifts to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.